0: Once a year, there's a moment of truth for the nation's finances when the Chancellor of the Exchequer gets to his feet in the House of Commons to deliver the budget. My name's Mike Greenwood, and I've been talking to parliamentarians, historians, tax experts, and one former Chancellor of the Exchequer to give you a glimpse of what goes on behind the scenes of this national institution.
1: Mr Chancellor of the Exchequer.
0: (laughs) Mr Deputy Speaker, it is a great honour and privilege... To deliver a tenth budget.
2: It's one of those rare occasions in Parliament where what's said today can actually affect you tomorrow. It's the politicians standing up there and saying exactly how they're going to affect your life.
0: It is a budget to advance the ambition of all.
3: Money continues to be central to politics and what you can do is very much set by how much money you can possibly raise to do it.
0: So this budget will take no risks with inflation.
4: It's one of the occasions when you can guarantee the chamber is packed. Partly because it's political theatre.
2: And I commend it to the House.
1: My first one was an absolute triumph, where I expected to be hanged at the end and found everybody was praising me. My worst one was one where I sent everybody to sleep. The budget's a unique combination of fiscal policy, parliamentary process
0: and political theatre. For many within the House of Commons, it's the highlight of the parliamentary year. For the public, it's the moment we hear what the taxman will take over the next 12 months. And holding centre stage is the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Kenneth Clarke knows a thing or two about budgets. As a seasoned politician, he's seen many a budget day, and he took the spotlight himself as Chancellor of the Exchequer from 1993 to
1: 1997. The British are almost unique, I think, in turning their annual budget day into a kind of uh, public festival. People used to dress up in various costumes or their smartest suits or their best hats on both sides when I first came here. And we still have the business where a great thing is made of the Chancellor posing outside before he comes and so on. I always determined in the budgets I gave that I was going to enjoy it. It was actually the culmination of six months extremely hard work. Uh, The main aim really you had during the day was to try an interesting way to get across the key messages of what on earth you thought you were doing, make jokes, deliver it in a fairly you know boisterous fashion and uh, go for it in terms of selling it so the Parliament and public
4: was concerned. It's true, it's a piece of theatre but it's also a summary of all of the individual bits of tax legislation that the Chancellor is going to introduce through what's known as the Annual Finance Act. Anthony Seely
0: is library clerk in the Commons Library and an expert on tax policy. He points out that certain taxes like income tax have to be renewed by Parliament every year, so without the annual budget, a government couldn't function. Budget Day opens the process whereby the Chancellor's plans are submitted for approval by Parliament.
4: Alongside the budget speech, the Treasury will publish a great deal of information that will set out in great detail all of the measures that the Chancellor in the most part has simply touched on in his speech itself. Those details, mostly in the form of a series of what are called budget notes, will then be turned into provisions that will be presented to the House and scrutinised in the same way as any major government bill.
0: And that power of Parliament to scrutinise and give consent to taxation goes back to the origins of Parliament in the 13th and 14th centuries, as Dr Paul
3: Seward, Director of the History of Parliament Trust, explains. There's always been an assumption that it's not lawful for the king to go round just taking money out of his subjects' purses or their lands or or, or whatever. Raising money to support the king's wars, to support his administration, is one of the basic things that parliament is for. And there's always been a process of negotiation within the House of Commons between the king's ministers and members of the House of Commons saying, well, how much do you want, Um, how are we going to pay for it, oh dear, that's far too much, and so on. But the idea of an annual event is a bit more nebulous. And it's really, I suppose, in the middle of the 18th century that we can start to see a process which people call the budget. During the 18th century... Britain is at war for much of the time against the French, very expensive wars, big technology, big ships and lots of troops abroad. So the whole process becomes a much more annual one. So the budget's just an annual opportunity for the Chancellor to fill the coffers
0: with what he can extract from us in taxes? Stephen McGuinness, head of the House of Commons
2: Information Office, disagrees. It's definitely more than that. The level of taxation in the country doesn't vary hugely between that 35% to 40%, what the Chancellor's looking to do is follow a programme of where the burden of the taxation lies in the population. That really defines who they are. If the burden of taxation shifts towards the richer, they're probably seen as far more redistributive and and socialist. And if it comes back towards the middle and the the lower end, then they're probably seen as far more business friendly. It really does define who you are and which papers you're playing to as well.
0: The budget really is the acid test of the political manifesto of any government in power, isn't it?
2: It's the one that definitely shows what you're doing in practice.
0: How did former Chancellor Kenneth Clarke approach his
1: budgets? The first thing you have to bother about is the public finances to make... Income and expenditure match, which is the problem for all of us, but particularly for a Chancellor on a monster scale. The next thing you have to consider is the effect on the broad economy. The job of a Chancellor, you you can't create any jobs, you can't create any wealth. What you're trying to do is make it easier for a few investors, businessmen and people who work in industry to do so. You've got to decide whether you should loosen up policy a bit. That means put a bit of money into the economy, take a bit less yourself, or whether it's time to tighten up policy and stop things overheating. And then the third one, you start indulging yourself about the kind of behaviour you'd like to encourage, the kind of society you try to make, and to a modest extent it brings out what your political instincts are. But in order
0: to pursue any political programme, the government needs the funds to do so. It wasn't until 1798 that income tax was first introduced. Until then, chancellors had to resort to means ranging from the ingenious to the devious to raise indirect taxes on things like commodities. As the list of these grew,
3: so did the notion of a formal budget. That great 18th century politician, Sir Robert Walpole, usually regarded as the first Prime Minister, starts to compile these incredibly complex fiscal systems and he tried to put duty on salt, for example, and tobacco. Crucially, Walpole started taxing tobacco, very controversial at the time. And so this collection of interesting and complex proposals certainly gets called a budget in 1733. And the word seems to have stuck. Or baguette. It comes from the French,
2: doesn't it? Which is a little bag. And it's this red case where the budget comes and it's Traditionally, the Chancellor comes out and shows his red case and then he brings that to the house and he opens it up with all these papers inside. The budget has entered our language now and it very much means looking after the figures. And everybody's got their budget for the household and their budget for the family. And the Chancellor's budget's obviously for the country as a whole. The budget's steeped in
0: traditions which, on closer examination, proved to be grounded in political and economic realities. Take the convention known as budget perder, that strict code of secrecy about the precise contents of the Chancellor's Red Box. It's designed to prevent anyone gaining a financial advantage by exploiting inside information about the budget. Kenneth Clark.
1: Oh, I believed in strict budget perder. I still do, that you don't let an inkling go out uh, whilst you're preparing it. I don't believe in this consulting on taxes. And we had strict budget purder inside the government. Uh, the only person in the government who insisted on knowing, and I let him know what I was planning and discussed it with him, was the Prime Minister. Other Cabinet Ministers only discovered on the morning of the day we were so keen on secrecy. And I used to discuss it with John Major, and uh, with caution. He carried out what Harold Wilson best described as the classic role of a Prime Minister vis-à-vis a a Chancellor, which is to advise and to warn. But to be fair, in the end, he let me get on with it, even if uh, some of the things I did were obviously not politically particularly
3: helpful in the short term. It's sometimes been breached, most famously by Hugh Dalton, the Chancellor in 1947, as he walked through the lobby, actually on his way into the House of Commons to deliver the budget speech, and bumped into a journalist from the London Evening Star who asked him in a jocular way what was in the budget. And Dalton, presumably thinking by that stage it was harmless, told him. And the reporter managed to get the details into his paper before Dalton had actually sat down. So there they were on the London streets. It led to Dalton's resignation as Chancellor.
0: If the budget is the Chancellor's big day, the climax of the day itself is the budget speech. It's the moment when the eyes of Parliament, press and public
4: are all on the Chancellor.
1: Mr Chancellor of the Exchequer.
4: Where the tradition is also very meaningful is the fact that the speech itself is so important. The things contained in the speech will have to be turned into legislation. This is the one
2: time when the Chancellor takes top stage and it's his time. There's a small tradition of the Chancellor coming with a drink. You're not normally allowed to eat or drink in the chamber, but the, each Chancellor comes with their favourite. I mean, Gordon Brown would come with mineral water. I think Kenneth Clark preferred a, a touch of whisky. And each of the Chancellors has their own style of presentation, their own style of delivery, and their own preferred aperitif when
4: they're doing it. The budget is one of the very few times where... The entire media concentrate on the very words being said in the chamber because they have such importance. And members right across the country will be keenly interested to know how the budget speech has actually played for their own constituents.
2: You can see in the benches when they're listening to it, you get oohs and ahs and boos.
4: And it really does make it a very exciting time of the year to watch. It's one of the occasions when you can guarantee the chamber is packed. Partly because it's political theatre. MPs are there very much to see a classic test of wills between the government of the day and the opposition. That's the reason why there are so many members there. They know they need to be there to be cheering on their own man.
0: A budget for Britain's future, and I commend it to the House.
2: And I commend it to the House.
0: So the budget's about economic planning and the sound management of the country's finances. It's dependent on political processes and it's an occasion for tradition and public theatre. But as Stephen McGuinness reminds us, the Budget was born out of the struggles for the supremacy of Parliament and it lies at the very heart of our democratic system.
2: It's been a sort of contention between the Sovereign and Parliament And the Commons and the Lords, even up to the fact of Charles I, deciding he wants money but was tired of having to ask Parliament's permission and eventually wanted to abolish Parliament itself and went to war over it. Obviously, Parliament won. The Commons has retained this authority to be the body which does raise taxes. Even the Lords not being able to amend the finance bill or make any changes to the way they would normally make changes to legislation. Those are really details getting down to the Commons being the ultimate authority to raise taxes in the UK. It makes the law, not the government.
1: The most dramatic that I ever listened to was Nigel Lawson's in 1987, I think. uh, The Speaker had to suspend the House for disorder 20 minutes into it because Nigel had had the temerity to stand up and say he was reducing the top rate of income tax to 40%. This so outraged the old left of the Labour Party that a riot broke out. The chancellor had to break off the house had to be spent away for 10 minutes everybody had to calm down before we could resume it and get to the end you know? i had never had anything like that my first one was an absolute triumph where i sort of really threw myself into it and enjoyed it a lot and expected to be hanged at the end and found everybody was praising me i was astonished when i sat down i just announced the biggest tax-raising budget in post-war british history and everybody seemed to go down quite well partly because i lowered expectations In the run-up to the budget, whilst i never told anybody anything, the hints I gave always were designed to make people fear a tougher budget than I was actually going to deliver. Lower expectations, give them a present surprise on the day. My worst one was one where I sent everybody to sleep. I had some very, very worthy proposals on the relationship between benefits and income. I started at 3.30am and by 4 o'clock, half the inhabitants of the chamber were asleep.
0: Former Chancellor Kenneth Clarke, concluding our look behind the scenes of the Budget. If you want further information about the work of Parliament, go to the Parliament website, www.parliament.uk forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.